Welcome back together. We are in Acts chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Acts chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there may be one uh, in the seat in front of you. Julie was talking to a friend of ours uh, this week and uh, told her about uh, church and um, told her the times and all that. And she said, he talks for an hour and a half. And uh, thankfully, no, I don't. Uh, the total time of our gathering is just at about an hour and a half. But this is the part of the, uh, the worship service where we come together and we hear a message from the Bible. And, and it's my goal uh, in the process of what's called expository preaching Expository preaching is just basically the main point of the passage should be the main point of my sermon. And you should be able to follow the text as we see it uh, in the passage in your Bible. And you should be able to say, I can see the point that he's making and I can see where he got that point. Uh, the text is not a diving board where I start with it and spring off into some pop psychology message or seven ways to be happy kind of a message. Uh, it, it should be driven by the text, the message. And so, uh, so you listen and you hold me accountable uh, as a Berean. A Berean are those who check the Word of God to make sure that the things that the speaker was saying were actually true or not. And so I invite you to hold me accountable to the text. Uh, and it's my hope and desire that God will speak to you through His Word as we walk through it. Over the past few months, uh, we started the uh, series in the book of Acts, and, uh, and we will uh, go through the book of Acts over the next two falls. Uh, we'll get, try to get to 18 or so, chapter 18 or so, uh, by February, and then uh, we will pause and get into a gospel uh, sermon series, Lord willing, and then next fall in September, we'll start right back up in the book of Acts, and, uh, and I'm hoping to accomplish it uh, in the two uh, fall seasons in that way. Last week, we looked at chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, and you'll remember that in that passage, uh, Peter and John are walking up to the temple at the hour of prayer, around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and as they're entering into the temple area, right outside the temple area, there's a gate, uh, it's called the Beautiful Gate, and there is a beggar who has been placed there, a person with, uh, without any ability in his legs, and uh, is relying on people to be carried, and so Peter and John, when they see the beggar, they tell him, hey, look at us. And he looks at them expecting to receive money. And Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have, I give to you by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And so Peter gives him his hand and the man stands up and instantly muscle and tendons and nerves and everything comes together in this miraculous moment that this man who's over 40 years old who had never walked instantly receives a complete healing. That was chapter 3 verses 1 through 10. And so this morning is really kind of a continuation. This is actually a two-day event. It starts off um, on this particular day at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And then there is the miracle and then there's the message. That's what we're covering today. And then at the end of this message, which could have been three or more hours long, this gathering, because in chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, the religious officials, they come and they see what uh, Peter has done, and they arrest Peter and John. And they, I think they may have even arrested the beggar because they bring them all out the next day and they have a trial, some sort of an examination. And then this whole episode 
All of chapter 3 is this two-day event. It ends with the apostles and the disciples gathering together and praying. And you'll remember this prayer. They said, Lord, help us to consider their threats. And and in this place where they crucified your holy servant Jesus, uh, give us boldness to continue to speak in that name. And the place where they're praying is, is shaken up. Remember that? That's this entire episode that's happening over this two-day event. So this morning, all we're going to take care of, we covered the miracle last week, today is the message, and then the uh, results and the arrest. So chapter 3, verse 11 through chapter 4, verse 4. Let's read that together now. Starting in chapter 3, verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, that's when he saw the, the crowd gathering, when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release Him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. Now listen, Peter knows nothing of political correctness, all right? He is in their face immediately. You killed the author of life. You murdered the holy and righteous one. You asked for a murderer to be uh, uh, given to you instead. So, so Peter, with this crowd in the condition of amazement and wonder, staring at them, this is the message that he delivers to them. Then he says, verse 16, And his name, that is Jesus, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. Now remember, this guy had been in this condition for over 40 years. And so he had been placed at the beautiful gate regularly. He would have been a regular. People would have known him and would have seen him and they recognized him. That's what caused them all to run together and they're amazed at him. So this man is made completely well through faith in Jesus is what Peter is telling them. Uh, Verse 16 continues, by faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now I want you to think about that phrase, perfect health. When we think about perfect health today, there are no shortage of people who want to sell you a pill or a smoothie or a process or something by which you can attain perfect health. But Peter is saying it is through faith in Jesus that this man has received perfect health. Verse 17 And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, 
whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. That's where we get the idea that from three o'clock into the evening, uh, Peter and them were arrested, uh, and this goes into the next day. Finally, verse 4, But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. This is no small or insignificant crowd. It's a large crowd. It's in the temple complex in the colonnade called Solomon's, which is a large platform outside of the temple itself. We'll say a prayer, and then we'll get into this text today. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you sent it out for the purpose uh, for a purpose that you will accomplish. As Isaiah tells us that uh, the, the water and the snow, the rains and the snow um, come down for the purpose to water the earth. And so also your word will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. I thank you that those who are gathered here listening uh, this morning, uh, you have gathered them here to hear your word. And I pray that they would have ears to hear and eyes to see. I pray that you would open their minds so that they may understand the scriptures. I pray that your spirit might speak to us, uh, that you would convict us of sin, that you would help us to grow in our Christ-likeness through your word today. Use this community of believers to strengthen us and to help us to know you and to make you known. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the main point I see in this passage and the main point I want you to take away from today's sermon is that Peter preaches a very clear gospel message. Peter preaches a very clear gospel message alongside a good work. And so the application for us is that we, we should share the gospel uh, completely in its entirety. Our good works are not sufficient in leading a person to faith in Jesus. You should be actively preaching the gospel alongside good works. It's not either good works or a gospel message. It is both good works and the gospel that should be a part of our work in the kingdom of God. The lie of the social gospel is that we're only here as the people of God to help people by following Jesus' example of love and acceptance and service without really giving them a gospel message. 
A few years ago, I was visiting the DeStefanos in Guatemala, and there was a particular missionary there whose only aim from his own lips was to help the farmers grow their crops better in Jesus' name. He never spoke to them about the gospel. He never spoke to them about sin. He never spoke to them about redemption. He never spoke to them about the cross. He never spoke to them about the new life that Christ offers. The only thing that he was there to do was in Jesus' name, basically offer a cup of cold water to those who are thirsty without giving them any message of life. That's the lie of the social gospel is that we exist just to do good works and to help people. The truth of the gospel and the truth that you're going to see in Scripture is that Peter preaches a bold message here, right? You killed the author of life? That is a bold gospel statement alongside a good work. So I want you to see that, and I want you by the end of this time to be convinced that you should be verbally proclaiming the gospel message alongside the good works that you do. So let's get back into the text, and uh, and we'll start to see this, hopefully, as the message goes on. Verse 11, while this guy clung to Peter and John, this guy was, I imagine he was hanging on to everywhere Peter went, he was dragging this guy along, he probably could, you know, didn't want to separate from him. Can you imagine being um, an invalid? for 40 years, not being able to use your, your legs, not being able to walk, and, and then all of a sudden to, to experience a complete healing. Um, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10 said that this guy jumped up and began leaping in the temple complex, and he was running, and he was shouting, and he was praising God, and then as soon as that ended, wherever Peter and John went, this guy was right next to them. He was clinging to them. He had a new body, new muscles and tendons and nerves and strength, and all those things were only before there was only attrition and weakness. He was completely new in his body. And I think that this man not only had a new body, but I, I think that by the end of Peter's message here, he also possessed a new spirit, a new heart. I think that he might have been counted among those 5,000 people who were saved. Uh, in... in um, response to this, a crowd spontaneously comes together and they're utterly astounded. So look at verse 12. Let's see what Peter does with the astounded crowd. When Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this or stare at us? Just pause there for a second. Peter takes advantage of this gathered crowd of astounded people full of wonder, and they're looking for an explanation. Now the word that he uh, is used, that's used to describe the crowd as astounded or in wonder or amazement is the word thalmazo. And the reason why I bring that up is that it's used so often, um, wonder and amazement. It's used so often in the New Testament surrounding the person of Jesus and the way the crowds respond to him. It's used so often around the apostles and the work that God does through them. It's used so often with Paul on his missionary journeys, the regular response of people is complete wonder and amazement, and they are um, astounded at what takes place. The word thalmazo is used 43 times, all from the Gospels into Acts and into um, um, primarily in Acts and, and through the Gospels. It is a regular occurrence. One commentator remarked that it's so common in the New Testament that beginning Greek students, it's one of the words that they use um, to, uh, to teach them the Greek 
endings, right? Um, in my Greek classes, we used the word lombano, and so we had to learn the o, ice, i, aite, and all the different verb endings. You remember that from grammar school, right? Thaumatso is such a common word that in many Greek classes, this word to be amazed and to be in wonder is used to teach basic Greek because it's such a common occurrence in the New Testament. It is a regular thing to be amazed by the person and work of Jesus. And it's a good point for you as a moment of evaluation to say, when was the last time you were amazed at the work of Jesus? Either in your own life, or in the life of the church, or in the life of someone else. One of the first signs of backsliding One of the first signs in our culture today, there are so many people who are deconstructing from their faith and are leaving Christianity altogether. And one of the first um, signs that that is taking place comes with this infatuation with me and myself and my own goals and my own dreams and my own body and my own understanding, my own psychology. All of those things come at the expense of a wonder and an amazement at the person and work of Jesus. Don't let this go by. The people are amazed. They are thaumatsoed at the wonder. They're astonished. They're marveling at the person of Jesus. It reminds us of when Jesus was ascending. All the apostles were gazing into heaven, beholding the glory of God. If you lose sight of who Jesus is, and you lose a sense of wonder and amazement at the person of Jesus, it is one of those signs of examination and evaluation that you should be considering each time we take the Lord's Supper, each time we're gathering together. Is there still a wonder at who Jesus is? Is there still an amazement? You can't read the pages of Acts without seeing this response from people. You can't read the Gospels without seeing people amazed at who Jesus is, marveling at His work. Peter gives the explanation. He's not at a loss for words at all. He knows exactly why the good work was done, why the man was fully healed and restored. And by the way, there's a sort of a sub-layer of what's going on here. Over chapters 2 through 7, you have these sermons in the temple complex. You have the Pentecost sermon. You have uh, Peter's sermon here. You're going to have Stephen's sermon. Anytime that they're in the temple complex, Luke is going to contrast the old regime of the temple and its indications of death and decay and dying. And then you're going to have these new believers who are filled with the Spirit as the new temple of God. And following them, you're going to find life and restoration and healing and wholeness. The temple is on its way down. And that's true from the moment um, Jesus, when He breathed His last in Luke 22, uh, when Jesus breathed His last and darkness covered the land, what else happened in that time? The veil, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And that veil indicated the presence of God located centrally within the, holy, the most holy place in the temple. And from that time forward, the temple worship is on its way out while the worship of God uh, through um, Jesus Christ by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, this becomes the new temple, right? 1 Corinthians 6, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's important for us to, to be careful in the 
way we live and the way we operate within our bodies because it is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so we're not supposed to grieve the Spirit. We're not supposed to quench the Spirit. We're not supposed to get drunk. Um, we're supposed to be filled with the Spirit in those ways. We have a new and a different relationship with God's Spirit that is no longer temple-bound. Okay? And you're going to see that as Acts progresses from Jerusalem, around the temple area, out into the uttermost parts of the world, where now the temple is on the move, and that temple is us, the people of God. Listen, that's important because as you scatter from here, the Holy Spirit doesn't stay here while you're not here during the week. If you're a new believer, if you're in Christ and the Holy Spirit indwells you, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and He leaves with you and you go out into the world as a representative of the gospel and of Jesus Christ. So we see that temple idea here that uh, with Peter and the apostles, there is life and healing. And then um, uh, Peter immediately, once he gets their attention, he basically says, why are you staring at us? It's not by our own power. It's not by our own piety. We don't possess a power to heal this guy and, and we're not godly enough for God to have done this for us. We didn't earn this healing for us. Peter says, why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made this guy walk? I, I bring this up as well because somehow in our culture, I don't even think it's in our culture. I think it's just in our world. One of the deceitful schemes of the enemy is this idea that you can find healing and wholeness and health outside of Jesus Christ. I grew up in an atheistic family. I had a dad who was kind of a hippie, hated Jesus and Christianity and religion, but was open to everything else. So I remember as a child sitting around and watching these chanting circles of people channeling spirits. I remember in different times him uh, and others using hallucinogens to try to connect to some sort of higher plane of consciousness. I remember watching and listening as they described in the later phase trying to work on their inner child and connect with their inner you know, infant in their life that was damaged somehow. I remember phase after phase after phase of therapeutic paths, drugs, hallucinogens, yoga, spiritual experiences, meditation circles, drum circles, Reiki, acupuncture, all sorts of psychological studies, brain scans, the sort of reptilian brain. I've heard these things so many times from a new age perspective that just one more thing is what I need to become healthy and whole and for everything to come together. I remember witnessing to a guy maybe 10 years ago on the streets who was taking me down this line of all the things that he had done to find wholeness. And, and I, I stopped and I said, listen, I've, I've lived through this. I've seen people I know and love walk me down this path of all the things that they're doing. And I want you to know that in, their, in, in his 70s, my dad is still looking for the next thing to bring health and healing while denying Jesus' ability to heal him. You can't get on the right vibration or frequency. You can't put positive energy out into the universe that's going to return to you. You can't manifest something that you don't have. None of those things do we possess as humans to give us any sort of a power to heal. None of it. 
I've been on the front row watching people who chase after those things, and it's a, it's a merry-go-round that never stops. Have you ever been stuck on a, on a Ferris wheel and it never stops? Yeah, it's miserable. But this is the path, the treadmill that never ends is the next thing is, is going to bring happiness. The next thing is going to bring wholeness. The next thing is going to bring health. Peter acknowledges right away, it's not our own power that gives us the ability to be healed. It is only by faith in Jesus' name. Now, that's not a message that this culture is going to tell you. That's not a message that this culture is going to tell you, but that's the message of the gospel. Peter says it's not us. It's not by our own power. It's not by our own piety. It is only by faith in Jesus Christ alone that this man is made perfect and whole before you. Verse 13 through 16, Peter is going to appeal to them and he's going to appeal to the God that they know. And I want you to read and listen to verses 13 through 16 through the lens uh, of a Jewish person. This is in the temple. Peter is witnessing, sharing the gospel with um, pious Jews who are going up to the temple at three o'clock to pray. So this is a different group of people that he's witnessing to. And I, I, I mention that because we see a different gospel presentation by Stephen to the Sanhedrin in, in Acts 7. We see a totally different presentation by Paul in Acts chapter 17 to the, the Greek philosophers at the Areopagus. Peter's message and Paul's message and the message of the gospel, although it caters to different groups of people, there are some gospel foundational similarities that are consistent across the board. Peter is appealing to them as Israelites. So in verse 13, he says, the God of Abraham, the patriarch of their faith, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. Now, servant Jesus is a key word, and you're going to see it oftentimes in, um, in Acts through the mouth of the apostles. We'll get to it in a few minutes. The God of our fathers glorified Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. That's Barabbas. You killed the author of life. What an ironic statement. You killed the author of life. And, and just in case the irony um, doesn't sink in, they didn't kill Jesus. Jesus offered himself on the cross as a willing sacrifice. He had every chance in the garden of Gethsemane when he said, Lord, this cup before me, I don't really want to drink it, right? I, if, it's, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. In other words, I don't necessarily, I'm not looking forward to the cross. I don't, I'm not necessarily looking forward to being beaten and tortured and hung on a cross. So if there's any other way, let it happen. Jesus could have abandoned the cross altogether by just simply escaping the darkness of the Garden of Gethsemane and making his way out into the world somewhere. But he didn't. He willingly stayed there, allowing uh, the Romans to come and arrest him and allowing himself to go through the trials and allowing himself. So when Peter says, you killed the author of life, we understand that Jesus willingly gave his life. But God used them, these Israelites, as the mechanism and Rome as the executioner. You killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. The resurrection of the dead 
We talk about it all the time in church, but this was not a normal thing, okay? I mean, it's not a normal thing for us. We just talk about it all the time, and we hear about it all the time. But they would have known Jesus just a couple of years would have been in that same temple complex teaching and walking around. They would have recognized Jesus. Then they would have recognized him as he died on the cross at Passover. But then they also have these people who for 40 days testify that Jesus was raised to life and now they're testifying again. We saw him alive. He's not dead. This would have been uh, um, an, an entirely... Um, ridiculous statement except the fact that they were witnesses of it they saw it and we learn later that Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at one time there were eyewitnesses to Jesus's resurrection and then in verse 16 he gives the reason that this man is healed and his name by faith in his name Jesus has made this man strong whom you see and know and the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all So Peter's appealing to their highest possible authority, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. He's going to appeal to Moses in a few minutes. Uh, Later, he's going to talk about David and and, in his first sermon at Pentecost, he says that David is the messianic, uh, Jesus is the messianic fulfillment of David's kingly lineage. All over, when talking to the Jews, uh, the the apostles are appealing to the God that they know and the scriptures that they're familiar with. The author of life, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, our fathers, the holy and righteous one. And then they use this phrase, God has glorified his servant, Jesus. They use this phrase uh, four times, and it's the, uh, the word ado. And, and turn over with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52. Yeah. If you're new to the Bible, just uh, go left. Uh, and, and if you open your Bible to the middle, you'll, you'll typically land around the Psalms. And then uh, Isaiah is just a couple of books um, to the right of Psalms. And we're looking at Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. Isaiah 52 and 53. And I bring this up because, you know, it's interesting that I couldn't figure out why Peter, talking about Jesus to this crowd, didn't tell them that he was the Son of God. Well, that was a title that Peter would have known. Jesus said, who do people say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. This was revealed to you by my father in heaven. Peter's confession was that Jesus was the son of God. But Peter doesn't preach Jesus here as the son of God. But he talks about him as the servant Jesus, the author of life, the holy and righteous one. And all this language finds its origin in the prophets. And I want to show you that in one spot in Isaiah 52 and 53. You listen to similar language from Isaiah 52, 13 through Isaiah 53, 12. Isaiah 52, 13 says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. 
As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so martyred, I'm sorry, marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they shall see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Chapter 53, verse 1, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Talking about Jesus, Isaiah is prophesying about Jesus, saying, He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Jesus had no form or majesty that we should look upon him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. That's us. We are the offspring, those who have placed our faith in Jesus. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. See the clear gospel presentation? They would have known Isaiah 53. They would have known the suffering servant. By the way, if you ask any um, Israelite or Jewish person today, tell me, who is the suffering servant in Isaiah 53? Who is the one who fulfills this prophecy? Many of them will say it's the nation of Israel. It's a symbolic gesture of the nation of Israel. But then when you dial down into it and you say, but, but how is it that he was marred beyond human semblance? How was it that, that, um, that he was um, uh, you know, offered as a lamb? And then John says, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All we like sheep have gone astray. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How does that jive with, with Israel? How does Israel get the iniquity of us all laid on it's, it's one of those passages that even today Israel struggles to answer. Who is the suffering servant? But they would have known this passage. They would have known this passage all the way over in, in Acts chapter 3. So when Peter is preaching to these pious Jews and he keeps referring to the Lord's righteous servant, Jesus, the language is clear that Jesus is their Messiah. And now that they're on the hook... 
He says, now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. 17, Acts chapter, back in Acts chapter 3. Now, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back so that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. He appeals to Moses, then he appeals to the prophets, Samuel, and all those who came over, <clears throat> declaring that Jesus is the one. <clears throat> we see the results in 4, 1 through 4. The priests and the captain of the temple, they came up and arrested them, greatly annoyed them because they were teaching about Jesus. They arrested them and put them in custody until the next day. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. <clears throat> Let me close with these three ideas. These, these three ideas. Acts 2.42-47 ended with the church having favor with all the people. Right? There was favor everywhere, favor with all the people, and, and everyone was with them. But it, we, we get to the next chapter, and now they're being arrested. We're going to get a couple chapters in, and persecution's going to break out. Saul is going to ravage the church. In one ch chapter, the church has some favor, and the next chapter's persecution breaks out. And let me just make this by way of a point of application. Don't hang your faith in Jesus on the church's acceptance within the culture. See, many people walked with Jesus and walked with those within the church. And, and you've seen it, you've experienced this in a way that generations before haven't. The cultural favor that, our, that the gospel, that Christianity enjoyed for a few centuries, those winds shifted dramatically over the last 20 years, so that now the cultural winds are at our face against us. Since the 1960s, baptisms, denominations, church growth has continually declined. At the same time that Romans 1 describes the three phases of judgment taking place in our culture. God gave them over to a sexuality. That was the 60s and 70s and 80s. Then the next part of God's judgment. He gave them over to a homosexual desire. That was the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. And then from that point forward, he gave them over the third part of the judgment of God on a culture is giving them over to a reprobate mind. A reprobate mind that can no longer reason itself. That no longer, it's the complete loss of all common sense. The same common sense that our culture would tell you that there are over 400 gender combinations where the Word of God says that He created them male and female, that is evidence of a mind that is gone. 
And it's Romans 1, 18 through 30 that says God gave them over to the sexual revolution, that God gave them over to a homosexual revolution, and then that God gave them over to a reprobate mind. That's the culture in which we are raising our kids and we are living now. And those who are no longer clinging to Christ have left the church. It's no longer culturally acceptable to be here. Just in one year through COVID, we lost over 100 people in this particular body of Christ. That's just this church. Listen, I know, I talked to dozens of pastors who say that the church over the last three years and the people who are jettisoning their faith has increased and the number of churches being planted have decreased. Denominations are completely falling apart. This is not a woe and doom and gloom kind of thing. I praise God because the spirit that was at work on our continent for a few hundred years is now at work in the Middle East and in Asia. And God is redeeming a new people and they're hearing the gospel and the work that was, we enjoyed for a, a period of centuries is now taking place to a people who have long rejected Jesus. And I rejoice in that. I rejoice in that, but our culture has turned its back on the church. And if you're hanging your faith in Jesus on the culture's acceptance or rejection of Jesus, it's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time before your faith crumbles. If you need the American flag and the Christian flag to be waved at the same time, then you're hinging your faith on our culture's acceptance of... Listen, Christianity knows no political boundaries. The gospel is the gospel in Asia and in Africa and in Europe and in um, Australia. The gospel is a worldwide gospel for all people and all nations, and it is not exclusive to Christianity. And the church can thrive in a culture of persecution. Your faith won't if you're hanging it on our culture's acceptance or a political situation that is favorable to Christianity. If you, if you doubt what I'm saying, read the book called The Insanity of God about persecuted believers in the Sudan and, uh, and a missionary who goes around the world to ask believers in the worst circumstances around the world, how does your faith thrive under the worst situations while our struggles under a favorable condition. Some of the worst things for Christianity in the history of the church, Constantine making Christianity legalized, it didn't help the faith. America stamping its approval on Christianity is not a blessing to the church. And if your faith is dependent on the culture's acceptance or rejection of Jesus, it's just a matter of time. The second point of application. We must share the gospel in its entirety with words, not just good works. And there are two aspects that we see in Peter's message here. A good news and a bad news aspect, right? Look at Peter's message above. There's a real bad news element to his message, right? Look back at uh, verses Uh, 13 through 16, you delivered Jesus over to Rome for crucifixion. You denied Jesus in the face of Pilate who had decided to release him. You denied the holy and righteous one. You asked for a murderer. You preferred Barabbas over Jesus. You killed the author of life. I don't know about you, but those are all bad news statements. Those are all indictments. Those are all personal convictions toward those listeners. You rejected the guy who healed this guy. 
completely. And now you're amazed at this guy. Don't you think there was a cumulative sort of uh uh-oh moment in the crowd? There There was a sense in which they were personally guilty and they experienced that. The rejection of Jesus, the complete rejection of Jesus was apparent in Peter's sermon. You rejected Jesus completely. And listen, when you're talking to people, they will agree with and identify with a a rejection of Jesus. Uh, Drive to Philadelphia. Ask a hundred strangers if they think that Jesus was God. And just, and report back to me what you find. I think you'll find 80% or more people would say, no, he's not God. Most people use Jesus's name as a curse word. Most people laugh when you say the name of Jesus. The majority of the world identifies with the complete rejection of Jesus. Listen, even those who say that they believe in Jesus often functionally live as atheists. They treat Jesus uh, like a lucky rabbit's foot or a superstition or like the tooth fairy or some sort of a mythical figure that they just sort of occasionally pay homage to. But very few people live in complete abandonment to the will of Jesus Christ. There are these functional atheists who say they believe in God even though they live like there is no God. There is no practical difference in their lives. So the bad news must be shared first, and Peter does that. And if you're going to share the gospel, it's not enough to just say Jesus loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. Those are all good news things. But a person doesn't receive the good news, which is what gospel means, until they understand the bad news. And the bad news is that we've rejected Jesus. Either actually rejecting him, like I did. I I have some friends of mine witnessed to me when I was in middle school, and I said, you're crazy to even believe that there's a God. Take Jesus. I don't want anything to do with him. Jesus was a curse word in my family, and we regularly um, use that name in, in a way that we would use a curse word. A complete rejection. Many people either completely reject Jesus, or they just pay Jesus lip service by treating him like a good luck charm or an Easter bunny or a tooth fairy or some other mythical figure that has no legitimate difference in our life. Many of you are like that as well. Grew up in a church and, and Jesus means something to you in a moment when you're singing, but, but you go through the rest of your week and there's, there's no relationship with Jesus. There's no profession of faith when the crowd around you is not this crowd we could be just as guilty as rejecting Jesus as the people that Peter was talking to. That's the bad news that we all need to come to grips with is that before we're saved, we rejected Jesus and our sins separated us from a holy God and we couldn't fix the sin problem with moralism or good behavior or a right philosophy. We couldn't repair our relationship with God on our own. We needed a mediator. There was nothing we could do to make it right. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. It's not that we needed a little help. We needed new life. Our old life had to die and be buried, and our new life had to be given to us by Jesus. And that's the good news. We see the good news of the gospel, that Jesus gives us new life by his death. We call this the great exchange, where Jesus trades your sin for his righteousness. Jesus trades his reward for your punishment, and he trades his life 
gives us life for his death. That's the good news of the gospel, but you'll never receive that unless you understand the bad news that you're a sinner in need of it. God accepted Jesus' sacrifice as punishment for our sins, and God raised him from the dead, showing that his sacrifice was sufficient. So Peter tells them here, if you repent from your sins, times of refreshing will come. Times of refreshing. The repentance of sins and placing our faith in Jesus is the way in which the cross is appropriated to us. How do you get forgiveness of sins and adoption into God's family and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and inheritance in heaven, eternal life, a place in God's everlasting kingdom and administration and work by repenting of your sins. By repenting of your sins and believing in Jesus. That's the pathway to life. Denying yourself, uh, confessing your sin and giving your life to Jesus by faith and repentance. On October 28, 1949, Jim Elliott wrote in his journal, the missionary said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. Jim Elliott died as a martyr to Quito Indians in the Amazon jungle. But he wrote and he lived in such a way that proves his statement he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Echoing Jesus' statement in Mark 8, 36, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Listen, if you're not sharing the bad news of the gospel alongside the good news of the gospel and you're just doing good works, it's insufficient. Share the whole gospel alongside good works for it's the message of life. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have made us ambassadors. <clears throat> you have made us ambassadors um, of the message of life. Ambassadors who uh, are to make an appeal to the world as though it were God making his appeal to the world through us to be reconciled to God. You've given us the message of reconciliation. You've given us the Holy Spirit within us that uh, is our power for proclaiming the message of reconciliation. All you need are people who know the message of reconciliation to be willing to share the message of reconciliation. Not to buy into a lie that all we need to do is some good works and help people along in life. Help us to be like Peter, a, pe a people who proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in its entirety so that people may receive new life in Christ. And may that be an example that we um, live out here in this congregation. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.